0: This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a profound and widespread global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Listen with care and compassion, and please talk to someone should anything come up for you while listening to this episode. For more resources, email svri at svri.org.
1: Gender based violence is a patriarchal issue, and therefore, in a patriarchal system where there's religion, where there's l- legal practices, we are dealing with this issue where everything is from the patriarchal lens.
0: You're listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast from the SVRI. I'm Elizabeth Dartnell, and I
2: am Angelica Bini. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children, and in this podcast, we'll learn how to make that vision a reality.
0: In today's episode, we're exploring the issue of engaging faith and spiritual leaders in addressing gender-based violence. Today, we're going to hear from Shruti Majumda, monitoring and evaluation specialist at the UN Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women.
3: It's a grant-making mechanism. Uh, it's housed at UN Women and has over the last 25 years partnered with and supported primarily civil society organizations in pursuing the Ending Violence Against Women and Girls agenda. Uh, We've supported organizations like women's rights organizations, youth groups, indigenous communities, faith-based and traditional leaders, human rights organizations, the media. To date, we've uh, supported over 600 initiatives in 140 countries and territories across the globe. We will also meet Elizabeth LaRue, Research
2: Director at the Unit for Religion and Development Research at Stellenbosch University in South Africa.
4: We kind of see ourselves, or the way I think of the unit, is as a bridge, on the one hand, between academia and praxis, but then also between practitioners and policymakers, but then also between academia and policymakers around this space of religion and development, or within this space of religion and development, where bridges, but maybe also interpreters, you know, able to speak the languages of the different spaces. And that's really, I think, what we strive to be, to, to contribute to better understanding between the different spaces.
0: And we'll introduce you to Prabhu Deepan, gender equality practitioner and advocate at Tier Fund.
1: Tier Fund is a Christian charity that partners with, you know, churches and local communities across 50 countries, really focusing on tackling poverty through sustainable development, and responding to disasters and challenging injustice. And within that, we also focus on various thematic issues like sexual and gender-based violence, where in over 15 countries, we have programs that is really looking at addressing sexual and gender-based violence, either by focusing on preventing violence through our work called Transforming Masculinities, which is a gender transformative approach, also accompanying survivors of sexual violence through a process called Journey to Healing, which is really working with and accompanying female survivors of sexual violence across these countries that we are working in.
2: Faith and spiritual leaders are powerful and influential, often deeply trusted by communities. As Shruti explains, that trust means they hold an enormous sway on community attitudes, on violence against women and violence against girls
3: whether as custodians of customary laws, whether as keepers of culture, as influencers of social norms, we know now that not engaging with them can risk reversing the gains on, on prevention and response strategies. So it's really, it's really, really critical that we work with them and that we work with and fund interventions that engage them and their underlying belief systems. And we engage and fund a diversity of organizations that are doing this, right?
4: Religious leaders, they really are a critical dimension of working with religion and working with a religious community. So if you want to do this, then you you kind of have to work with religious leaders because they're gatekeepers. And in many religious groups, especially ones with a really strict hierarchical structure, it really, it's impossible to engage with with the religious community, with the people in the community, without going through their leaders, without that permission and opening of the gates. The need to engage
0: faith in spiritual leaders goes beyond their role as gatekeepers. Faith, spirituality, and culture form extremely complex belief systems that shape values underpinning violence against women. So it's important to have their buy in to address deep rooted issues as certain religious beliefs can contribute directly to violence against women.
4: Where a religion, you know, promotes beliefs that see men as better than women or that subjugate women in the roles that they are allowed to play, where a religion justifies violence, this is where religious beliefs really contribute to to violence against women and girls. So I think it really is about what a religion and what religions but they teach about the relative value of men and women and about how relationships should be because religions can teach and support social norms that drive violence. So definitely, yes, I think they can contribute to violence against women, but of course they can also do the opposite, but this is not just happening in the global South. I think there's very often this implicit assumption that, yeah, religion's a problem in the global South and We see this happening in the global north as well. If we see the battles around sexual and reproductive health and rights in the U.S., for example, this is religion contributing, religious beliefs contributing to violence against women. So I think, you know, this conversation, it's important to take it out of only the global south and and realize that it's a global conversation. Religion is often
2: seen as inherently patriarchal with most religious leaders being men. But we know just how critical it is that the voices of women are represented when addressing issues around violence against women. So how do we make sure this happens?
4: We've really seen that you need to be quite intentional and strategic and creative to also work with women leaders because they're there. They're just not, you know, the people who open the door when you knock, but they're there. For example, in many communities, this may mean engaging with informal religious leadership. So the leaders of the music groups or the Bible study teachers or the women's group leaders. Then I, we know that and what evidence really shows us is that where you're working with a religion that has a central sacred text, a scriptural approach can work very well. And this is an important approach for a number of reasons. First, sacred scriptures are often inaccurately read and interpreted to justify gender equality and violence. And this might be intentional, it's sometimes intentional, but it's really, it's happening. So rereading and reinterpreting these scriptures can be a very important way of addressing a religion's role in facilitating and driving violence against women. We also find that engaging with sacred scripture is a really effective way of working with religious leaders because they're comfortable with it, they see themselves as experts on it, they trust it. So it's authoritative text that allows for a conversation in a space that they're comfortable with. And then we also find that many religious leaders, they have very little theological education. So they're benefiting from this theological engagement that really increases their ability to read and and interpret the sacred text. The flip side of this is that not anyone can do such scriptural engagement. So y- you have to have the right and the authority, you know the knowledge and, and the standing that that these leaders and will listen to you. So we see, for example, if it's a non-faith organization, that's facilitating such theological engagement or even a faith-based organization, but they're not seen by community members as really religious or truly religious, then it could actually have the opposite effect, that they are distrusting these alternative theological interpretations that are offered. Then maybe just a final thought that I think is really important is that you have to take time. You can't just walk in, you know, and you're telling people your religion is wrong and you're not supposed to be treating women this way. It's a process. And this is true not only of of engaging religious actors and religious communities around violence against women and girls. This is true of any type of violence intervention where we're trying to get people to change and examine their beliefs and norms and behaviors that, that drive violence against women and girls. It takes time and, and relationship and, and respect, so that we really see as crucial in, in this kind of engagement with religious communities as well.
1: So I think for us, what we've done is we've found ways to build into the intervention components, whether it's activities or the trainings or the dialogues, to create space for women to lead in these spaces, like, you know, women, gender champions, in the faith leader trainings where we invite we invite uh, not only the you know religious leader or the you know the top pastor or the imam but also the head of the women's department and you know so to bring them into the wider leadership conversation that we are having and facilitating with uh, these leaders so that we are creating some sort of a structure that you know kind of encourages them to think about who are the women that we can bring into this space our responsibility then has been really creating that's making sure that that space is meaningful not just participation But the women in that are really hurt, and they can bring their experiences and the expertise and the wisdom in a way that shapes, you know, the conversation in that space. I think that's one thing. And on this journey with religious leaders, then as we journey alongside them to really highlight the lack of space for women, the limited space for women, I think then we intentionally focus on, you know, like I said, it's not just about highlighting what's wrong, right? It's about then What is the alternative? What is the new norm? What we really forget to do is that creating a space where we can actually, together, imagine an alternative. And I think this is where we think about what could it look like if we created space, if women were leading in this space, and then thinking about what could leadership look like in the church, creating more spaces for women to testify and, you know, preach and, you know, and to lead conversations, et cetera, uh, in in our intervention setting, but also looking at beyond that in our day-to-day lives. You know, because we frame gender inequality as the root cause of, you know, gender-based violence, we also say gender inequality is, you know, lack of autonomy, opportunities, access, leadership, rights, power, et cetera, for women and women, and all the unequal power and, you know, access and all that I mentioned. So what we really want to then look at is that if we are talking about gender equality, what we are saying is that it has to be equal access, equal opportunity to lead, equal space, mobility, you know, all of that thing. But I think what is really important is for us to be very intentional, in agreeing and creating that space where we are naming things that need to be there or missing. And then the work with the religious leaders themselves. They are mostly men. We realize that just because, you know, men are now saying, or religious leaders say they really want to be engaged and be on this process for themselves primarily, and then, you know, for the community, right? Like, it's not just like saying we need to mobilize religious leaders. We are saying we need to work with you as men who need to be on this transformative journey for yourself. Because if you believe in equality, you will preach and practice and model equality. So I think that's the kind of work that we take forward. And then really, you know, then working along with them to talk about accountable practices, because, you know, just because I as a male, you know, even in this conversation, say like I'm pro-equality doesn't mean the cultural privilege and power and all that that I've learned just goes away by me professing about it. No, it is an active thing that I need to focus on. I have to practice, I have to be intentional about it. I have to hold myself accountable and allow other people to hold me accountable.
0: Shruti says it's important to fund interventions that engage faith and spiritual leaders, but to also fund a diverse portfolio of organizations and potentially even partnerships between them. And this is exactly what the UN Trust Fund has been doing.
3: We funded faith-based organizations, of course, um, like the Episcopal Relief and Development in Liberia, like TruCare in Kenya, who are very well equipped to draw on insider credibility with local faith-based and traditional actors and engage them very deeply through their religious texts, through their sermons. But we've also funded youth-led organizations, right, uh, such as Restless Development in Nepal that works on harmful menstruation practice of chopadi We funded the Sindh Community Foundation in Pakistan that works on early enforced child marriage. And these organizations too are very well equipped to work with these actors as well to question, to hold them accountable for harmful beliefs and values being passed on intergenerationally. Alongside that, of course, it's also important to fund local women's rights organizations. For example, we have funded Alafia in Togo. We funded the Psychosocial Counseling Center for Women in the State of Palestine. And these women's rights organizations have played a key role in awareness raising, in capacity building among faith-based and traditional actors, and really sort of centering women and girls' voices within this kind of programming.
2: So with such a rich history and diversity of regions and projects,
3: what can Shruti share with us in terms of challenges and lessons learned? Since 2020, we've been engaged in a very intentional process of drawing out practice-based knowledge from the UN Trust Fund's archives. Of monitoring and evaluation reports and we call this our learning from practice series and we're really excited about it because we've published now a series of knowledge briefs on a wide range of topics but i want to tell you one of the first topics that emerged inductively from our archives is having a lot of practice-based knowledge as worthy of a deep dive was this topic of how to engage faith and traditional leaders in, in the prevention of violence against women and girls So I'll talk about a few lessons, as I said, that really stood out for us as a donor is, of course, A, this is not a homogenous group, and there is no one-size-fits-all way of engaging them. So we really do need that diversity of approaches. Another lesson that's clearly coming out is there's much more documented work and research on the faith side rather than in the spiritual leader's side. And here we really have to look at practices from, from across the globe on, on what's working and what isn't working, much more on spiritual leaders and their engagement with violence against women. A third thing that's coming out as important is discourse. One of the challenges that seems consistent across contexts is that when it comes to implementing programs with faith and traditional actors, if the discourse is perceived to condemn specific practices outright, or if the discourse is seen as being driven from outside the community, it can really lead to resistance and backlash. It can have risks for women and girls, for practitioners in the front lines, and really it can push harmful practices underground rather than eradicating them. And here the role of grassroots and local civil society organizations cannot be stressed enough. This is something we're seeing come out as a very clear lesson that they have a unique role to play in this space in being able to convene multiple stakeholders, multiple kinds of faith and spiritual leaders and develop a tailored, flexible and coordinated response, which is so necessary, as we're seeing in the current pandemic context. Right. So. Overall, supporting grant-making that is adaptive, that is long-term, that is flexible, is very important in this space, especially if we want to be intentional in our engagement with with faith and traditional leaders.
0: So the civil society and women's rights organisations you partner with are generating valuable lessons from their project implementation. Why is practice-based knowledge essential in violence against women prevention programming, and in this case, in engaging with religious and spiritual leaders to prevent violence against women?
3: It is absolutely essential to complement the what works with the hows and the whys. How did programs start their engagement with these actors? How did they decide which specific actors to work with? In what capacity were they engaged? Were they engaged as gatekeepers, as connectors, as influencers, as partners? How do different faiths and cultures within the same communities, different rituals and practices, How do they intersect with each other to shape social norms? How do projects build and sustain the impact that they can have with these actors? What kind of discourse is really needed? What are some risks of doing this kind of work? These are all questions on which practice-based knowledge can really offer process data and context-specific data, which is so valuable. And when that is paired with and put in conversation with the evidence base, I think we can really move the needle on prevention of violence against women.
0: Let's go back to Lisa. We wanted to get her take on whether it's true to say that the role of faith, spiritual and traditional leaders in violence against women prevention is contentious. Has she found this to be the case?
4: It depends on the space. So, for example, if I'm working in a community in any of the many countries in Africa, that I've done research in then it's not contentious at all so people and including leaders and, and governmental leaders as well you know they realize and they recognize that religion and culture play a very decided role in people's lives and and their decision making and their priorities so if there's a research project or an intervention you know that dives into this intersection between religion and violence against women and girls it won't be controversial at all. On the contrary, it would actually be perfectly logical, but I don't only work in those spaces. And and I would say that there are many spaces, and especially in the global north and within intergovernmental agencies, government ministries, and, and some big donors, that there is a resistance to acknowledging or engaging that role of religion and culture in these leaders. Thinking specifically about religion, generally, I would say that within these spaces, there's an acknowledgement that, you know, the secularization thesis wasn't accurate and religion is still playing a role in the lives of the majority of people on earth. And there's an acknowledgement that, you know, religion is relevant to development and there might be engagement around certain development issues, you know, like a wash, or, but around violence against women and girls, so, you know, gender equality. Then there's a resistance and, and, and people often see religion and gender equality as irreconcilable. Um, so especially if an institution lords itself on being secular, there's often resistance to working with religion and religious leaders and then it becomes contentious. So most research on
0: faith, spiritualities and gender-based violence has been conducted by researchers from the North within a Eurocentric paradigm and focusing mostly on traditional religions. There is a growing interest and imperative to change the focus of research and decolonize knowledge in this field.
4: What does this mean and how can it be done? Decolonizing knowledge is about challenging this idea of the hegemony of the Western knowledge system and, you know, really striving to understand and legitimize other knowledge systems. And we do it by, you know, exploring these alternative methodologies and epistemologies. So with that understanding, if we're talking about decolonizing knowledge on faith and spiritualities and violence against women, I think a crucial first step is decolonizing research. And Maybe around that, I have uh, two key ideas that I think is, is important. First, and this is so obvious, but by having more Global South researchers involved in the research process, we have brilliant minds here in the South, and we should start using them. And where the expertise isn't there yet, to build research partnerships, you know, that is built on this Global South, located as knowledge, but also upskills the Global South researchers so that next time they do have the expertise and can do it on their own. But, you know, even as I'm saying that, honestly, I think the expertise is here. Um, we need research grants to be available for these researchers. Any of the challenges, again, the, most of the funding is in the Global North. So we need to rethink how we're identifying and supporting and funding Global South researchers and kind of bringing them into the the mainstream, like quotation marks mainstream. And then maybe secondly, I think it is at the same time more than just choosing Global South researchers. We have to think about the research agenda and who's setting it. And unfortunately, again, this tends to still be set by the Global North for that's where the money is. And this is of course true for development in general. So the development agenda is driven by the global North, even though it's understood as primarily benefiting the global South. That's why I think we need to start thinking carefully about who is setting the research agenda. And that's part of decolonizing knowledge in this field. And I think a key step in this regard would be to start taking indigenous religion seriously in our research and not just dismiss these religions as a form of culture. Our existing evidence around religion and violence against women and girls, it's so focused on Christianity and Islam, and, and we really do need to start looking further. And let's hear from Prabogan again. As Teer Fund
2: is a Christian charity, he has seen firsthand the positive impact of engaging faith leaders in this conversation.
1: I, like most people, started as a cynic because I used to work for a, a non-faith based organization back in 2013 and I remember my first kind of uh, three kind of formative studies that I did in uh, Burundi and Rwanda and DR Congo just really with faith groups that we're already working with and really understanding how do we you know work with men and boys in that context where faith and culture really collude in a way that reinforces some toxic masculine traits and it was really mind blowing in the in the way that you know obviously it's so obvious I've seen it but also to hear and see it in a in a context where you are actually in a conversation about gender based violence and people you know feeling like they can justify that That is really really you know really something at that moment and it was really disheartening and I remember like before I you know went to you know close these focus group discussions or these conversations with pastors and other you know leaders I felt like okay you know what if I never come back here. And so I remember, like you know, kind of concluding whatever I was supposed to do, and then just really talking through what I understood and how I these scriptures related to me and my experiences as a man, and really about the life of Jesus at that time, and really looking at tangible ways that we can look at his characteristics, etc. And there were a couple of things that really kind of stood out for me. One is that this man, you know, telling me, Prabhu, you know, how can I be something I have never seen? That, that I've never seen a man be like this or another man in my community or my father like this. So how can I even even dream or of, of aspire to be a man who's not this man who exemplifies, believes in equality, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing is I remember going back after six months and I remember this pastor in front of his congregation saying, you know, after Prabhu's seminar, again, this is not a seminar, as so I said, I you know, had 30 minutes of like heart to heart talk. He said, I realized I've been raping my wife for the last 20 years because I've never asked her consent in my life. And I think for me that was the first realization of how powerful it is, creating spaces for conversations and using, and relooking at text together, with religious leaders and religious communities, and how powerful that it could be. So since then, this is 2013, 14, and since then I've seen like you know this built into wider interventions and community dialogues and processes that not only work with faith leaders but faith communities, congregants, etc. And, you know, it has been really great to see the evidence of impact. And I know that Lisa has been involved in our study in uh, Eastern DRC with What Works uh, program in in the first iteration of the What Works program consortium, where we've seen over 60% reduction of intimate partner violence, over 80% reduction of non-partner sexual violence. This earlier last year, we've seen evidence from our work uh, funded through John Templeton Foundation in, uh, in partnership with Georgetown University's Institute for Reproductive Health, Called Masculinities, Families and Peace, uh, with mixed communities, both Christian and Muslim, with religious leaders and communities, where we've seen significant reduction of uh, intimate partner violence across both communities, but also improved social cohesion. So I think it's really, really exciting to see not that it is possible. Obviously, we are talking about reduction and not elimination of violence, and we need to kind of continue to work towards that, what that looks like. But I think what has been really encouraging to say is that, yes, this work is, is meaningful, it is impactful to people, and it, it is real in a way.
0: You are a founding member of the Joint Learning Initiative and the SRI Hub on faith, spirituality, religion and gender-based violence. Could you tell us a little bit about the hub and why do you think it is important to have such a space in this field?
1: Such spaces are really important to have the space where people like you, researchers, people like me who are practitioners, who are also you know, affiliated with faith in a way, working for faith-based organizations can create, you know, kind of have a dialogue and, you know, bring evidence, talk about evidence, talk about challenges, discuss how we can improve practice in a meaningful way, because we have common objectives in terms of like really working towards an, a world, a future that is equitable and, you know, and free of violence, right? So I think that itself is really important for us. And obviously around advancing research on faith responses, because I think there's a lot of good work. You know, when we started this conversation, at you know, 2013, I remember back then, there was, pockets of kind of interventions and there was work that was going on it was not visible and you know there was no dialogue and it seemed to be a bigger dichotomy than it you know it is now because it felt clearly divided on this faith is bad, you know, therefore we do not engage. On the other side, we, you know, faith-based actors and faith-based communities are like very distrusting of the wider sector that was working on gender-based violence. For us, then this space is where it overlaps faith and gender-based violence and research overlaps so that we can really advanced research on prevention and response to gender based violence in the places that we work in and then really think about how we create a space to encourage highlight good practice and bring other people and you know kind of join people up in the way that that's you know happening most of the research as we started in the beginning was really focusing on you know high profile funded you know like interventions i think what has happened over time is a more devolved hub where there's not only the main faith, we are talking about spiritual language has shifted. You know, we are talking about more geographic spread. We are talking about diverse voices, not only around faith, but also around sexual orientation and gender identities, et cetera, in the leadership itself, which is really exciting, I think, for us as a new direction. So yes, for just this fact that we could come together as practitioners, as researchers, and have this conversation, talk about evidence, talk about the challenges, talk about best practices and and have a dialogue. I think that's why this hub is really important so that we can advance knowledge, advance research.
2: So are our guests optimistic? Can effective engagement of faith and spiritual leaders make positive changes in the lives of women?
4: Yeah, I'm optimistic because I've seen those changes. I've been in communities where religious leaders had been mobilized to understand gender equality and, and the importance of ending minds against women and girls. Also, you know, I've seen how the international community has changed into being more open to the reality that religion and religious leaders and religious communities play a role in in preventing and responding. Clearly, it's not yet where it should be, but there really is much more receptiveness to this dimension of holistic intervention. So, yes, I would say I'm positive and it's exciting to be part of the journey.
1: I have enough of kind of you know experiences positively and seen the evidence heard the stories and I think that makes me really optimistic. Obviously, there's a lot of work ahead, and I think that's where conversations like this are really helpful that we can continue to have dialogue, continue to challenge call each other you know out, hold each other accountable, but also just know that we are journeying together and have shared goals
3: I'm very optimistic from from where I sit at the trust fund, but also from over a decade of having seen and witnessed this work firsthand having done research on it from one of the grantee organizations that i recall when i last visited the work of episcopal relief and development in liberia gives me so much hope just to give an example right i remember being so moved by their ability to work in such a hard a fragile and conflict affected context bringing together different faith leaders imams, pastors, engaging them deeply through an experiential learning model, bringing them together in dialogue with women's groups, with youth-led groups, and really filling a huge gap when it comes to to creating community-based structures that can support survivors of violence and hold public officials accountable. And this is one of many examples of practitioners we've supported that are doing wonderful work, but they have to be supported long term. And we have to take an adaptive approach to supporting them because, again, we know that for an intentional engagement with faith and spiritual leaders, it's important that we take the time, that we we invest long-term for this to be successful. Thanks to our guests, Shruti Majumdar, Elizabeth
0: LaRue and Prabhu Deepan for joining us on this podcast. I'm Elizabeth Dachno.
2: And I am Angelica Pino. You have been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SVRI. To find out more about our vision, visit svri.org.
0: To free the world of violence against women and violence against children, we need everyone to hear our message. So please subscribe, like, and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode
2: far and wide. Thanks for listening. And we will see you for episode seven, which explores the topic of decolonizing knowledge and funding on violence against women.
4: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.